Welcome to Third Floor Views, a production of Chesapeake Family Life, where we talk about health, education, and living with kids. I'm your host, Janet Jefferson. Today, we're talking about drug addiction and activism. Joining us is Jesse Dunleavy, educator, activist, and award-winning author of Cover My Dreams in Ink, A Son's Unbearable Solitude, A Mother's Unending Quest. Thank you so much, Jesse, for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Janet. Let's jump in. So first, Jesse, I'd love for you just to tell us a little bit about your story. So about you and your son, Paul, and what your book is about. My book is about his life. And it really does cover the many challenges that we faced well before addiction came into the picture. From the time he was a toddler, I knew he was different. I didn't worry as much about him as maybe I should have because he was sweet and happy and I was just so in love with him and feared by him that when teachers said he's not paying attention, he doesn't take his turn when prompted, I thought, you know, he's just immature for his age. But he had a um, attentional problems that were pretty severe, but he wasn't classic ADD. He had a language impairment. And for him, that meant that his word retrieval was slow. So by the time he thought of the right word, the people who, who were in a conversation with him had moved on. So he learned early on to not contribute to conversations. And so he had a hand tremor and other neurological differences that defy a label. He had an abundant capacity for empathy and for intuition, but people didn't know it because again, he was socially awkward and, and he was reticent. Finding a school for him was a challenge. He did go through um, in special education from second grade through 12th grade. And that was an ongoing challenge. And I will say we met a lot of good people along the way. And I worked well with Anne Arundel County who tried to help find the appropriate school. But I think he'd gone to eight schools by the time he graduated from high school. And I'm a person who, you know me well enough to know, I like consistency. <laughs> I don't change things a lot. He was hospitalized by the time he was 17 and, and put in a psychiatric ward. And that's when mental illness was introduced. And that took me by surprise and was a horrible experience for us. It wasn't a good place and he was misdiagnosed, which we didn't know at the time, but then it took us years to overcome that. It was harrowing for both of us. And so he was over-medicated. As I said, we worked with a lot of good people. He didn't turn to self-medicating until he was in his 20s. And so along the way, we had, as I said, good people, but we had our share of bad luck, as well as just the handicaps that we were dealt from, from the get-go. And so the, the self-medicating turned into addiction, which then led us down a road that was frightening, overwhelmingly confusing, and, and cruel and inhumane. I do think that it, all in all, Paul's story shines a light on how multiple systems fail the most vulnerable among us. And it drives home the message that good people can fall into bad circumstances. And the drug use is not a sign of a moral failure or, or a circumstance that should be harshly judged. It, it, it's one that most often deserves compassion. And, and so it's, it's a very, very hard road. 
And that's more or less, in a nutshell, um, our journey. So the book talks about about Paul and his journey, and then your role as his mother and helping him navigate the systems in place, good, bad, and ugly in between, and and the ups and downs of that journey. But then there's something also, I think, particularly unique about this book. And you chose not to only tell the story, his story and your story, but you also included some of Paul's poetry. Um, Why did you end up choosing to do that? And what do you think it brings to the book? I think, well, first of all, it's the poetry that motivated me to write the book. I knew well before Paul uh, his 20s, as a teenager, he would write. And I can remember him writing under the covers at night with a flashlight. And he would write in a spiral notebook. And he would write and write and write and then crumple it up and throw it in the trash. And his handwriting was nearly impossible to read, if not impossible. But I know now it was his way of self-expression because he kept most of his thoughts to himself. So the poor thing He not only had trouble articulating what was on his mind, but then he's writing it and it's not legible. But he didn't write it to share it. So I think it did give him some satisfaction. So I knew he could do this. As he got older and he got a laptop, all of a sudden you could read what he wrote. And there was spell check too, which helped a tremendous amount because spelling was never his thing. And so after he died, I got his laptop. And I was able to read a lot of his poetry. And some of it I had seen, even in recent years, he'd email me and say, here are a couple of new poems I wrote. But I saw a lot of things I hadn't seen. And I was grief stricken. And I was so moved by the skill that he had and by the fact that most people who knew him wouldn't believe that he wrote these things. And so I thought, I'm just going to publish his poetry. I want to show him off. I want to honor him. He never did. So then I realized, but just publishing his poetry apart from his journey and his learning disabilities and his setbacks and all of his struggles wouldn't be as meaningful. And I realized too, that the poetry helps to tell his story. So, and I think what it does for the book is it gives you a window into the mind of this young man. It wouldn't be possible as a reader if you were just hearing it from me. So I intertwined the story as I know it. Obviously, it's a memoir and it's from my perspective. But we were close and and I certainly knew his life journey. But the poetry was the motivation and I think it enhances the understanding of him. Definitely giving some insight into into a private person and and some of his thoughts along along the, the way. You experienced the unthinkable uh, as a mother because you lost Paul. Um, What advice would you give to another mother with a child who is struggling with addiction, whether that be, you know, a teenager or, or an adult child as, as, as Paul was? Well, for one thing, I never turned my back on him and I'm, so grateful for that because I can't imagine the grief in losing somebody if you had turned your back on them. And I know that some parents do, they're just at the end of their rope and and they cut the child off. And I'm just grateful that I didn't do that. So I would caution somebody when they're at that crossroads 
there is a lot to figure out and there aren't easy answers, but completely writing them all, I think only contributes to the suffering. I learned that people suffering with addiction need love and they don't need detachment and they don't need shaming. But the cultural bias is so powerful that it confuses those of us, especially those of us who, who are in a crisis. And so we think that maybe we have to threaten legal consequences or threaten turning our backs on them to get them to wake up and to seek help. And this whole notion that you have to hit rock bottom in order to be receptive to recovery is just a fallacy. If you had, if hitting rock bottom got you closer to recovery, then people coming out of the prison systems would be on the road to recovery. And that couldn't be further from the truth. These people are isolated, they're shamed, and they, they need the opposite of that. They, they need love. And so I'm not saying they're easy answers, and I am not saying that I did everything right. I think I'm pretty forthcoming in the book in terms of what I didn't do right. But boy, is it a learning experience. And so my, my biggest advice is to realize that they need love. And however you navigate through that, denying them love is, is the absolute most risky thing you can do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have young children right now and it, it makes me think about, you know, in a moment it could be so hard. And so uh, whatever developmental stage there they are, you know, as kids are, are, are navigating their own challenges um, as a parent, it's so hard. And, and there's that struggle of, you know, Oh, you know, maybe this person, this, this child needs a, needs a timeout, or maybe, you know, they need to really think about their actions. And, and, you know, so much of the research is saying really, they, they probably just maybe need a hug and that love and support is often the answer with many of our, our challenges that, that people face. I think that your children knowing that you love them no matter what is the most important thing you can do in terms of turning them out into the world as adults, because there's no such thing as a perfect parent. And, and you can't strive to be that. And you don't want your child to try to live up to perfect. So forget perfect. We're going to make mistakes. But that love is so important. And, there, and, and there's a range. You can be lenient. You can be strict. But it's the love. And it's the consistent love. And so I think that's true no matter what stage they're in. But you're always trailblazing. Mm -hmm. When you have a four-year-old, you can help a friend with everything about a three-year-old, but you didn't know it when you had a three-year-old. So hindsight gives us so much information. And, and certainly that's what, uh, why I've learned so much too, in part about addiction and, and navigating. Because I learned through experience and then the research that I did as a result has, has given me wisdom that I didn't necessarily have. Mm -hmm. Where has this, experience of, of Paul's journey and, and your journey, including the process of writing Cover My Dreams, left you. And then not only that, but you know, here you just released a second edition and and you won a national award. What have you learned along the way? And I know that's a really big question thinking about the entire journey. Um, but maybe what are a, a few things along the way that that have really brought you an aha moment? 
first thing that I learned is that Paul's death was preventable. Mm. And I learned that early on. I'm not sure I would have known that when we were navigating those final days, but his mm. death was absolutely preventable. And that's what catapulted me into the research. In his final weeks, he couldn't get help in the emergency room. And he really wanted help. He was maturing and he didn't want to have this drug problem. And he had gone a long time without using, had a relapse. And he said, I can't lose everything based on one relapse. I need help. So there's some people who say, I don't want help. Well, and there's stages and, and you're not always ready for help. So I have patience for the people who don't want help. But he wanted help. He couldn't get help in the emergency room. He was denied the inpatient treatment that he sought. He was unable to get the life-saving medication that he knew he needed. And without the benefit of any medical oversight, he died and he died alone. And I also learned that street drugs are far easier to get than medical attention. So it was um, an eye-opener for me. And, you know, when any child falls victim to senseless regulation, it's horrifying. And you and all you want to do is spare somebody else from that fate because you can't double back. So I, I learned a lot and I've researched a lot and I have studied the science, the legislation, the current state of treatment or, or support programs, I should say, because it goes beyond treatment. And I can see what, where the flaws are and, and what we need to do to move forward. And so I'm passionate about that. Let's talk more about that. So I think one of the big takeaways from your experience is it has made you into a really powerful activist and it's pushed you not only to write this book, but to be involved in um, moving legislation forward in, in a direction that maybe you hadn't initially seen before. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your role in activism and how, how you arrived there you know, after the, the heart-wrenching experience of losing Paul, when, when did it hit you that, that you could do something and you could make a difference? Almost right away. You know, he died in April of 2017, and I started to write the book in August of 2017, and I was finished it by the spring. And it was in that process that I also learned more. So that was before delving deeply into the research, although I had done some, and even before he died, I had. Well, when you pull together segments of your own life, you draw connections and conclusions that you wouldn't have otherwise. And so that's what really launched me into trying to make a difference. And then the, just paying attention. And, and I read books, I read articles, I figured out who to listen to. And I made connections with people that are the nation's thought leaders and the experts on addiction. And so I just have come so far uh, that, that I want to share what I've learned. And, you know, the United States has the highest overdose deaths in the world by far. There's not a close second. It's discouraging when you look at the graphs that show you the number of deaths per million people, so it's apples and apples. And the United States is in a year, well over 200. And other countries are like 40, 30. I mean, th there's no close second. Hmm. So um, we, that's discouraging. 
And then just this week, day before yesterday, the CDC came out with the provisional numbers for 2020, and they do that in July. So 2020 obviously added, ended in December. And so for that year, and they are provisional, and provisional numbers will go up, but it's well over 90,000 deaths in 2020, a big increase, 30% almost over 2019, which follows the pattern of the upward trajectory every year. We have quadrupled and then some, the number of overdose deaths in the last decade. And we've doubled the number of overdose deaths in the last five years. So ever since we've been hearing about the crisis that we have, the deaths have continued to go up, but yet we announced with some pride the strategies that we're implementing, but the deaths are climbing. And so it's very, it's very discouraging. But what's really driving the surge in the overdose deaths is the fact that the drugs are tainted with the likes of fentanyl and they're increasingly tainted, they're poisoned. And, and it's not just opioids, it's um, methamphetamine, cocaine, it's all tainted now. Hmm. And so that is what's killing people. Interesting. And, and so, you know, a lot of people don't understand just certain basic premises. For example, most people who use highly addictive drugs do not become addicted, by far most, 80 to 90%. And most of us know that from our own youth. We knew people who used what we consider hard drugs or dangerous drugs or highly addictive drugs. They didn't become addicted any more than heavy drinking lands you being an alcoholic. But even the people who do become addicted and therefore they meet the criteria as addiction is defined, most of those people outgrow it on their own without any kind of treatment whatsoever. This is a regular phenomenon, but it never makes the media because it's not sensational. And the people just grow up. So even though they were addicted, it's either a job or a child or an interest in life, a, a partner. You just pull yourself up out of that. And sometimes it's gradual, but it's a natural maturation and you get over that addiction. The people who meet the criteria for addiction and whose life is taken over by it and who can't pull themselves up. They don't have anything pulling them up. They don't have the hope. And almost always they had some sort of trauma and I won't say it's true with everybody, but some sort of childhood trauma. And maybe it doesn't mean that somebody abused them. It could be poverty. It could be a bad experience. It could be the loss of a parent, whatever it is, they're, suffering and they're afraid of the future. They have something traumatic in their past or a fear of the future and they need help. They need the most help. And the sad thing is they're the people that we're most likely to arrest. Mm -hmm. And so the people who are the most vulnerable, who need the most help, while all the people that have something to pull themselves up are taking care of it on their own and we're not hearing about it. But these poor vulnerable people were arrested. And the arresting solves nothing. Now, if you're guilty of a violent crime or if you violate the rights of others, 
there has to be some criminal justice system intervention and you need to protect the rest of us from the person who's threatening our well-being. But for possession of a drug for personal use, we're incarcerating these people and it's a vicious cycle. We're shaming them. We're taking them away from their employment. We're fracturing families. When they get out, they have a criminal record. They can't get a job. They can't get housing. They can't vote. They can't, other doors are closed, which brings on more trauma, more poverty, more pain, and they're more vulnerable to cycling back through the drug use and the incarceration. And it ruins generations of families. And when you look at the studies, study after study after study, there is no correlation whatsoever between incarcerating drug users and reductions in drug use. So if you're not violating anybody else's rights and it's doing no good in terms of helping this person, in fact, it's hurting this person and his children and his family, why are we doing it? Why? And the US also, I'll tack on to this, has the highest number of incarcerated people in the world. No, there, there's not a close second. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. And, and so we have an overall judicial system. We're paying less attention to the violent crimes and because we're spread too thin in terms of the resources that criminal justice has. And we're incarcerating people who could be productive. We have 2 million people incarcerated and 300,000 of them are for nonviolent drug possession. There's, there's just no other country that has this many. And so and the, the cost, we spend 80 billion annually to incarcerate people. And we spend 12 billion annually on education. Hmm. Those numbers don't add up. No, our priorities are off. And, and especially when you consider the number of lives that are ruined. And it also, you know, people say, well, we have to fight the stigma because there's stigma associated with drug use. And if it weren't for the stigma, we could move forward on some of the legislation that we know would save lives. But legislators are reluctant to move forward on that legislation because of the stigma. And they don't want to be seen as making um, drug use more prevalent, which none of these, this legislation does. But the misunderstandings and the stigma against drug users is so pervasive that it's blocking our moving forward. So a lot of people know, let's fight the stigma, fight against the stigma. Well, how do you separate stigma from, from a condition that we criminalize you for? So it, we're, stuck. Right. we're stuck. It's really intertwined. What role do you think then drug policy reform plays with thinking about some of the solutions then to this very complicated problem that we have here in the United States. Well, and it's not as complicated as we think. There are drugs and there are, you know, in very simplistic terms, there are two harms that come from drugs. One is coming from the drug itself, it's harmful. And the other is coming from criminalizing the drug. And it's criminalizing the drug that causes far more harm than the drug itself. And so, in my opinion, we have to stop fighting the war on drugs. It is a war on people. 
and it is a war on vulnerable people. We incarcerate far more marginalized people than we do those who aren't marginalized. And so it's, it's, a, um, it's a losing battle. It's not getting us anywhere. We are so dogged in our pursuit of prohibiting drugs that we, um, that, that we do things that make matters worse. For example, we are, we are putting a lot of resources, a lot of money into the DEA down on the border, blocking packages, scanning packages coming in from China. By golly, we're gonna rid the nation of drugs. Well, it's never gonna happen, but okay, put all the resources and the money and, and, and the energy into that. So as we do that, the cartels that are making billions in a year are not going to be dissuaded from their livelihood. So what do they do? They smuggle in smaller packages that are easier to smuggle, hence the rise in fentanyl. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we created policies to block packages in order to poison our drugs, but the outcome has been we have more deadly drugs. And so here we are spending all this money and we're not looking at the people who are addicted. And we did the same thing with prescription drugs. Prescription drugs were cracked down on maybe 10 years ago. If you look at the charts and they couldn't be more blatant as the prescription drugs have gone down steadily over the last decade, the overdose deaths have gone up. They cross there. So, our prescription drug monitoring programs, which we're also putting a huge amount of resources into, is not saving any lives. But yet we report it every year with pride, like we're cutting down on this. And you know what we've done? We've sent the people who needed those prescription drugs to the streets for heroin that's laced with fentanyl and to suicide in some cases. We've abandoned chronic pain patients who were not addicted. There's a difference between dependence on a drug and addiction to a drug. You know, you're dependent on your Prozac. These people are dependent on their pain relievers and they've been left out to dry. It's tragic, they've added to the death toll. So, so we really need to rethink what we're doing. It's, it's uh, we're overly focused on, on the supply side and not on the demand side. Mm. When we did crack down on prescription drugs, this was all because, you know, the Oxycontin and, and the drug companies, you know, the proliferation of pills that were coming from, from the um, prescriptions. But it was almost never the recipient of that prescription that became addicted. Mm. Those pills, there was an excess. And are the pharmaceutical companies greedy? And did they lie? Yes. And are they culpable? Yes. But it wasn't the recipients of the prescriptions. Almost never. It was the excess in pills because I'd go to the doctor and maybe have dental work done. And they always wrote a prescription for 30 pills, no matter what. It was always 30 pills. Well, right. I'd take a half and think, I don't right. like that. And it would go in the drawer. And I don't think any of mine made it to the streets, but those excesses made it to the streets. Mm. They either went to dealers or to people who sold them out of their own medicine home. And the people became addicted. They did. Mm -hmm. So when we decided to cut down on the prescription drugs, no one said, well, what about all the people that are addicted? 
What are we going to do for them? There was nothing done for them. Mm-hmm. So no, we cracked down on the prescriptions, but not on the people. And mm-hmm. so those people then turned to heroin and street drugs. The deaths went up. So that we're not looking at why do people take drugs? What is it that's wrong that these people are escaping through drug use? And what can we do to support them other than putting them in jail? Right, right. So, um, so it sounds like you're saying that we really need to do a better job of uh, refocusing our our resources towards research. So identifying like what what needs been done. The research is conclusive. When I hear that they're going to put money from the pharmaceutical companies into research, it makes me want to tear my hair up. The research couldn't be more conclusive. In every major health organization, the American Medical Association, the National Academy of Sciences and Engineering and Medicine, the World Health Organization, all of them agree in terms of what we need to do. We don't want to do it. So we are reluctant to... Let me just stop for a minute and talk about Portugal. In 2001, they stopped criminalizing people for drug use. It's still a crime to produce or sell drugs, but Mm -hmm. they don't criminalize anybody for carrying or using drugs. Mm -hmm. They had a pretty big problem. So they reallocated their um, drug intervention money to go 90% toward treatment and prevention programs and 10% toward um, criminal justice and Mm -hmm. law enforcement. The United States has the opposite. We spend Mm. 90% on criminal justice and law enforcement and 10% on prevention programs. Now, Portugal has six deaths per million people. Less crime. And we have over 200 deaths per million people. But we don't, but we claim if we decriminalize that we'd be, it would be a heyday. And mm-hmm. it's just not true. There are fewer people addicted in Portugal and there are fewer deaths. So, and then there's harm reduction. Harm reduction aims to keep people alive. It values life more than abstinence. Because those people who I mentioned who are just naturally, their trajectory is they'll recover, grow up, go on. Mm-hmm. They're dying before they get there mm-hmm. because of how potent these street drugs are. Right. So right. if we can keep them alive, by giving them test strips and, and um, clean syringes and the things that we know help them to stay alive and also tell them that they're cared about instead of shaming them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this saves so many lives. There's medications for opioid use disorder right. that are FDA approved and have been for years, but we're at the stigma that applies to drug use applies to those medications. And we right. have so many government restrictions. So I believe that every death is a policy failure. I think it all comes down to our policy and what we need to do. So if if the challenge really lies in um, over-incarceration due to the policies that, that we are experiencing, and with all of that, the cultural shame um, that goes along with that, what do you think the average citizen can do to really make a difference and move things forward in a positive direction where our, our lawmakers are hearing us that, we need to decriminalize drug use. If the best thing people can do is be informed, hmm. read, understand, look at the data, the scientific research, not the word on the street, because 
all of us, no matter how well educated or how well read we are in, in, in a global sense, we, we don't understand, we go with sort of the folklore that people who use drugs have a character flaw and they should be, you know, taken off the streets or that, um, you know, drug use just has to be stopped. You, you have to put people into treatment. You know, if I'm not addicted, we have people working on Wall Street that use drugs every weekend. If they get arrested, and, and we think we're being benevolent to send them to drug court instead of straight to jail, they don't need treatment. So they're diverted into treatment when they don't need it. They're not addicted. They are using drugs no differently than a lot of people use alcohol. It's, it's really no different. We should have learned with alcohol prohibition. What happened then? We gave rise to violent crime to, to the, the, the um, bootleggers making money hand over fist and to the substances being more dangerous. People who used to drink beer and wine couldn't get it anymore. They're drinking bathtub gin or moonshine. They also are risking their own health. So we learned from that, that prohibiting it. And then as a result of repealing that law, the alcohol, now you know what you're getting. It's regulated, it's labeled, you know what it is. We need to do the same thing with drugs. And we put the $5 billion a year industry of the cartels out of business. And they make $5 billion a year without paying taxes, without doing anything to be accountable. And we're letting this happen. So be informed, understand what these medications do. Don't go with the word on the street which we all fall into with certain topics. And we can't be well-informed with everything, but you're right, legislators can't either. How can you know about the science of the Bay and what's right in a hospital setting and what's right in an educational setting and what's right in terms of drug addiction? You're a legislator, you're smart and you want to do right by the people, but you learn from lobbyists and you learn from the people that, that talk with you and from your constituents. And so the more our general society can be informed, the more likely our legislators will go with the sensible policies. They really are reluctant mm. to do that because they'll be judged for it. Mm. Mm. Uh, one last thing, um, Jesse, if you would be so kind to read one of Paul's poems, something I know that there's a few that you have in mind um, and we don't have a lot of time Um so if you could choose one that I think would really resonate with, sure. with what we've been talking about. And I did intertwine them in the story. And then I added another 15 to this second edition. But I think I'll read Pleading with Gravity. And I picked that because it's where the title came from. A lot of people want to know, where in the world did you get Cover My Dreams and Nick? You have to listen to pick up that line. But... This is pleading with gravity. Oh, gravity, why do you blind me with your wicked, ill-fated tempers? Every time I attempt to climb up and out of your crippling power, you welcome me with a fall from grace back to your cold ground. Am I destined to your chains? Am I a part of your city sidewalk in a puddle of beer or cracked glass? Do you contain my prayers so they'll never reach the maker? Do you intercept these wishes and hide them? I want to sing and climb on stars, gravity. I want to do a handstand on the moon and dip my feet in the Pacific. 
I want to cover miles to grasp the notion of what infinity means. I want to cover my dreams in ink and repel you with my pen. I want to hide in my poem and sleep with my own inspiration. But I'm stuck here with you, gravity, and I'm bearing your weight for you. And so that's one of his many poems, and some of them are upbeat. Some of them are humorous. Um, he shoots the whole gamut in terms of um, what he wrote about, but that one I think is poignant and and it uh, you know did inspire the title of the book, which didn't come to me at first. But I thought, you know what, Paul was saying his dreams were covered in ink. Mm. Mine are now too. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Jesse Dunleavy. Thank you for having me, Janet Jefferson, and it's great to see you. And um, you know, I hope we stay in touch, and I appreciate you hearing me out. Absolutely. Jesse Dunleavy is author of Cover My Dreams in Ink, A Son's Unbearable Solitude, A Mother's Unending Quest. Thank you also to all of our viewers and listeners today. Make sure that you visit ChesapeakeFamily.com for up-to-date local information on home, health, and living for today's Maryland parent. This episode will be archived on ChesapeakeFamily.com in both video and podcast format. As well, there will be a link to Cover My Dreams in Ink so you can pick up a copy and more information about, about Jessie and her and the work that she's doing. I'm Janet Jefferson with Chesapeake Family Life and Third Floor Views. Thank you so much. <laughs>